I was learning on my own, right? There was no Google for this thing. There was no pick up the phone and, and ask this guy, but I wasn't scared, you know? And it's been my, a double-edged sword in my life in many aspects, and I will admit that, but I didn't care that the car was $250,000. You had a car payment. I didn't care. I didn't look at it that way. I never did, never have. Never look at these cars that way at all, honestly. Welcome to the HPO Tune In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Alex Soto from Sheepy Race. Now, Alex is a guest I was really looking forward to having on the podcast. I've followed his journey for a number of years, and if I was honest, I've always been a little bit jealous about his business, Sheepy Race, and namely because he gets to play with some amazing exotic cars. While Alex got his start and is probably well known initially for his work in the Honda scene, particularly with show cars and then moving on to drag cars, these days he's moved on from the Honda platform and has embraced the Lamborghini and Audi platforms, specifically building anything from 1,000 horsepower to 2,000 horsepower at the wheels, twin turbo Lamborghini Huracans and Audi R8s. And these are some insanely fast cars. Now, obviously, there's a lot that goes in between building Honda show cars and then building up to twin turbo kits for some of the fastest Lamborghinis and Audis in the world. And we find out exactly how Alex got his start and how he's built up his business, Sheepy Race. Before we get into our chat with Alex, for those who are new to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialize in teaching people how to tune EFI, how to build performance engines, construct wiring harnesses. We also cover race driver education, race car setup, fabrication and data analysis. All of our courses are delivered via online video modules that you can take from anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection. There's a full list of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses and remember as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code podcast75 that'll get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm really excited to learn about your your sort of adventures in forming Sheepy Race into what it is today. But before we get into that, as we do with most of our guests, we want to just learn a little bit about how you got your start, how you got interested in cars in the first place. So take us back to that. As far as I could remember, I remember uh, going to the grocery store with my mother walking down the magazine aisles back then, you know. Grocery stores had a lot of magazines, and uh, while she did her grocery shopping, I'd be hanging out in the magazine aisle, and she knew where to find me every single time when she was done shopping. And I'd be looking at the, everything from low riders to back then was Turbo Magazine, Sport Compact Car, Honda Tuning, and that's where it started. I must have been oof, eight, nine. Oh wow! You know, pretty, yeah, pretty early start. Yeah, earlier I loved cars as far as back as I can remember. Um, in high school, I hung out with the older guys that had, you know, the Civics. One guy had a Mustang that was supercharged. So I'd hang out with them and participate in going to the street races with them, you know, hanging out in the passenger seat. And then uh, when I was 16, I got a Honda Civic, a 93 Honda Civic, and I, you know, did the first mods, intake, you know, lower it, paint your rims black. Yeah, it started as far as back that. And that was my first car in my whole life. As far as my first job, my first real job was always automotive based. I worked at a distribution center that sold uh, OEM replacement items for engines, such as small blocks, 22R Toyotas, etc. Okay. So I've always been around it. I have been blessed and fortunate where I've worked in the automotive industry as my first job. I moved to California when I was uh, 18 and got a job at Web Camshafts. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No, I haven't. Web Camshafts is a camshaft manufacturing 
uh, that specialize in overhead cam stuff. It's not an overhead valve. They're known in like the Porsche world, a lot of in the side-by-side world, Can-Ams, etc. Okay. So I got, a, I got a job there, cleaning parts, and worked myself up to grinding camshafts, developing. And st- as I started making more money, I started modifying my Honda even more, you know, getting more crazy with first turbo kits. And at that time, I was really big into building all-around nice cars and landed my first magazine cover of uh, HCI and Honda Tuning and then Super Street and just kept evolving. Let's just talk about the the Honda side of things because this has kind of been, I think we're around about 70 plus episodes deep in this podcast now. Uh, I, I tend to probably interview more people that are US based than the rest of the world just I guess because of the population and this, this common thread keeps coming up of this sort of passion for the Honda platform. Uh, obviously nothing wrong with that, it's a, it's a great platform to modify, but particularly in the US, I've, I've interviewed more people who have gone down that JDM path, and again it's always ended up coming back to Honda, than the US domestic market. So can you give us any insight into why that Honda platform is is so popular and just keeps coming up over and over again? You know, and it'll continue to be one of the main platforms, it's just, you know, the B-series engine, it's year after year, people still continue to push the limits, and early 2000s when you had people like, Christian Rado, I don't know if he was still racing it, racing it then, but when Stefan Papadoc gets, he did H-Series the whole time. It's just been an engine that's been the center to front-wheel drive drag racing. And till this day, I mean, now people are making, it's been four years since I've stopped messing with them. And in the four years, the progression's been wild. It's just an easy platform to make horsepower and parts are relatively available, yeah. right? And the question is, when will it stop? I don't see it stopping. The little that I do go looking sometimes, you know, the the, the limits keep getting pushed. Now they're making billet blocks because the factory castings just split. Um, bigger turbos, you know, and yeah, it's crazy. I think Speed Factory is up to like 1,700 horsepower or something. I don't know. Something crazy. Yeah, you do have to wonder where it will stop. I mean, I think probably bringing it back to the the sort of first car enthusiast level, though, the bang for your buck out of a typical Honda B-Series, as you've mentioned, the availability of parts and the availability of parts quite cheaply. And then how these engines respond even with you know, maybe a cheap eBay turbo kit is is pretty exceptional, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, now in the past four years, the all-wheel drive conversions with, with the Hondas has really blown up. I don't know the details of it, but if you put an all-wheel drive conversion in a car that weighs 2,600 pounds, and makes 800 horsepower, that is a very, very quick car on the street. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've we've sort of seen with the evolution of the four-wheel drive conversions and, you know, the sport front-wheel drive Hondas when they were front-wheel drive, were already incredibly quick. And I've sort of come from the Mitsubishi Evo world and four-wheel drive's always sort of been the, the angle I've gone with. And all of a sudden you see these Hondas just blow past some of these four-wheel drive cars that have been developed for, for you know, a decade or more. So it is pretty impressive. But I guess the Honda side of things, they had the rest of the platform so well sorted out. So when you just increase the amount of traction, it's probably not surprising that they've done what they've done so quickly. Correct. Yeah. You know, I got really involved in front wheel drive drag racing where the team that I managed and tuned for was we were the first ones to go sevens on a small tire, which is considered 24 and a half in 2018 at World Cup in Maryland. Yeah. It was Sean Ramy, Ramy Racing. I don't know if you've heard of that car or that team. I have. Um, he eventually sold the car and then just focuses now on machine work. But, you know, I, I got pretty, pretty uh, crazy and, you know, dived head in deep into front-wheel drive drag racing and I went from building all-around show cars, Hondas, to giving all my effort into trying to go fast. Sure. Yeah, so that's that's how it all 
started. All right. So we, we went a little bit off track just on the, on the Honda side of things, which is fine. So let's just sort of come back prior to going down that rabbit hole. We were sort of talking about you getting started and getting your first cover shoot. So at that time, you're still working for webcams, is that correct? Web, yep. Okay, so so take us forward from there. So I was building, you know, I started, I built my Civic first, then I bought an Integra. Uh, this was in like 2008-ish, nine. At this time, I already had a great reputation for building nice quality cars. So I knew, you know, the people on the behind the scenes in the media world, right, at, that owned Super Street, Sport Compact, Turbo Magazine, et cetera. I built the Integra. I had landed a cover with Super Street before I even built the car. I just told them what I was going to do, the ideas, my concept, my theme, and they're all for it. Okay. At the time, I used a turbo kit from a company named Peak Boost. So I used that. The car did great. Got a lot of got a lot of exposure. Got the car running. Did the magazine shoot. Ran it all summer, all fall, and then um, I blew up the transmission. And I then decided that I wanted to put a bigger turbo kit on the car. I had reached out to this guy that was selling manifolds in out of his garage, and I said, "Hey, you know, I, I want one of these manifolds." Said, yeah, you know, no problem. So we became friends. Long story short, we became friends. He drove out here. He uh, helped me with the transmission. We put the turbo kit on. He stayed for the weekend. He drove out from Arizona, and we became really good friends. Um, his name is Charlie. He goes by Charlie Turbos on Instagram. Have you heard of him? No, I have not, but I'll check okay, him out. Cool. Yeah, great fabricator. I mean, he is also involved big time. Um, long story short, man, we became real tight. He was coming out every weekend, the whole nine. Great, talented dude, phenomenal welder. And at the time, my name was getting big. I built this Integra again with more power. And I got to a point where it was either I really learned the high power front wheel drive stuff or keep building these nice cars. And I'll never forget this. And this is when I really, really, really tackled front wheel drive drag racing. A friend of mine, I met him through Webb. Um, he'd contacted Webb to get custom camshafts for his Honda at the time. His name is Tony Palo. Right. T1 Race Development. <laughs> yeah. And so when he called Webb, you know, I was a little fangirl in the back. Like, yeah, this guy named Tony Palo from T1 is calling for camshafts. I was like, oh, I know who that guy is. Guy does cool stuff. We definitely got to make cams for him. So I really like, you know, had my my bosses really go in depth to make him a custom cam that suit him what he was doing. You know, I started talking to Tony and I needed some custom parts for my uh, I just started to build the S2000. Right. And I wanted a custom catch can and an overflow tank and an intercooler. And Tony made it all for me. So I'll just stop there. So we've had Tony Palo on the podcast before. And I mean, these days he's best known for building some of the world's fastest Nissan R35 GTRs. But uh, back around this era that you're talking, I'm going to assume this is during his Honda days. And he was very Correct. well known in the Honda market at that point. Yeah, he was a first into the eights. Uh, that was his big quest, you know, to get into the eights. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we became friends and I asked him to make me some custom parts or like totally was not his thing, but he made them for me anyways and built that car, landed cover Super Street as well. So I kept building these fancy show cars, tur- you know, they're turbo and made five, 600 horsepower, but just all around beautiful cars. Let's just talk a, l- a little bit about your skill set at this point, because you, you've talked about the fact you're building these cars primarily show, and it sounds like you're, you're sort of moving quite rapidly towards the, the performance and drag side of things. But I mean, there's obviously a lot that goes into building even a five, 600 horsepower Honda. Uh, you, you've got the mechanical side of things. You've got the, the engine build. You've got the fabrication. It sounds like you've got your, your friend Charlie sort of in charge of that at this point. Uh, and then all the other elements that go towards it as well as tuning. So at, at this point, what would you consider your skill sets were? I, I was just a good builder. I had a good v- I've always had a good vision for, for for how I wanted something to look. I've always been huge, huge on, on plumbing, right? I mean, back then, everything was AN. I mean, everything from vacuum lines to water lines. My first car I ever did in 2005, you would, the water lines are number 16. You know, everything was always AN. 
And it was inspired by the off-road stuff. I, I always looked at the plumbing in, in Baja trucks and trophy trucks and was just blown away with the amount of time and detail that they put into plumbing. And so I got that inspiration from that, applied it to the Hondas. I don't know how to weld to this point, to this day. So we'll start there. So Charlie did all the fabrication. I had a body shop that would paint the car. I had my engine builder, which at the time was Sal Succeeda. Um, he would build my engines and then I'd plumb it all. You know, I'd have the wiring done by Ryan at Rywire. And then, so you're leveraging this network of specialists in their own areas and you're sort of this overarching view of what the finished product's going to be and you're piecing it together to, to its That's correct. Form. Okay. Yep. Yes. Yeah, you know, I was friends with all these, you know, individuals that were the best at what they do, in my opinion. So, you know, it was all about the relationships. So the Integra blew up and at this point I'm like, I want let's go fast, man. Let's go drag racing. And I'll never forget this. It, it was something that is essentially made an impact in my life to where I am now. Granted, it was a lot of work. But Tony Palo once said to me, he says, if you put as much effort into drag racing as you do building show cars, the industry would be in trouble. <laughs> this is in 2011. So I said, well, I want to build a sport full drive car. He says, okay. He says, will you help me? He says, I'll help you, but you're going to learn along the way. He says, all right. So I get a MoTeC, M800. Put a 72 millimeter turbo in it, got a dog box, tilt and carbon clutch, the whole nine for this front wheel drive car. Tony gives us the calibration, tells us how to wire the whole thing, where you want the pinouts, et cetera. And I learned Motec M800. Mm-hmm. I'd sit there and I'd learn. And if I had any questions, I'd ask them. And I'd learn. And if I had any questions, I'd ask them. So I'd go testing at the local eighth mile track and just learning, learning, you know, and uh, boost control, how to dial in 60 foot launch control, just the whole nine, right? And we then, we had a couple local friends, Jason Park from FCS. And a couple other guys that were rented a trailer and we're going to go do the cross-country haul to Fall Nationals in Jersey in 2012. And I wanted to join. So Lori from Webb says, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for you to ship your car out there and help you with flights. Says, all right, cool. The car is, you know, has all the right parts to go fast. Now, granted, I'm not a driver. At this point, I was driving it. But this guy named Chris Miller at the time, which was big in the front-wheel drive world, him and I had a relationship. He says, ship the car. I'll drive it for you. All right, cool. So we ship it out there. And, you know, everybody kind of made fun of us at the time. Like, oh, what do these show guys from California know about going fast? And at the time, the record was 9-0 in front wheel drive. So we go out there, fall nationals. It was, it was, I'll send you pictures. It's, just, it's literally a street car with turbo kit, you know, all the right components. And goes out there, goes like a 9-1 first hit, qualifies. And that was fast for us. Like, what the hell is going on? Qualifies in the top three. Next pass goes a 9-0 letting off. Passed after that. Goes straight to an 870. At 179. That's one way to get some people's attention. I mean, it was crazy. I'll net, that was probably one of the highlights of my life, other than my children being born. It was just unreal. You know, me and Charlie didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> I excuse my language. Uh, but we, we, didn't, we didn't know. Like, we were just two kids out of my garage. I worked for Webb. Charlie welded out of my garage, you know, with the Miller Synchro Wave 250 on a plastic table from Walmart. Nice. And we just had these dreams, like, dude, we just, and, and we went fast. And I remember when this happened, I, we jumped and hugged and we went back to the pits. I take out my phone and I called Tony right away. And Tony was out. I remember he was out with his wife because they could hear the loud music in the background. I told him. It was just crazy. So overnight, it, we went from the two kids that were building the show cars out of a garage. I worked for Webb and broke the world record by three-tenths of a second. That's huge. On your third hit? Yeah, fourth hit, yeah. Third or fourth hit. Yeah, okay. It was just crazy all right let's just dive back into some of this so can you again just remind me was this 2012 
This was t- October 2012. Okay, so we're, we're 10, 11 years ago. So I mean, there's been a massive progression in times, obviously, ETs and mile an hour have changed dramatically in that sport front wheel drive class or all of the classes realistically. Absolutely. Records are made to be broken and they continue yep. to be. I, I think probably my experience in drag racing might mirror some of what you're talking about there. And I, I think like I, I'm thankful that I, I was involved in the early 2000s here in New Zealand when Drag racing was was really popular. Uh, drifting hadn't really made it to New Zealand, and and that wasn't something that spectators were were, were going to see. So, uh, drag racing was really popular. We had a uh, quite a tight knit group of competitors that were really close. I was in the Mitsubishi Evo platform, and there were three of us here in New Zealand. And we were sort of trading time, sort of weekend after weekend. One would go faster, and I think that was really helpful because it drove mm-hmm. us to all push the, the boundaries a little bit further. But where I was going to go with this is, I think at the time, it, it was possible for a moderately funded uh, individual with a day job to actually build a car that would have been competitive in, in the top three or maybe top five in, in the various sport, sport compact classes we had in New Zealand. And I think that really helped bring a lot of competitors into the industry. Uh, it was seen as something that was accessible. And, and these days, you know, that ships, I think, well and truly sailed. If we look at the, uh, the 2JZ platform, you know, y- you're not going to be probably competitive in- unless you've got a $200,000 plus car, probably significantly more than that, and probably a budget of, of that again or more to-, to run the car. Is that similar to what you, you-, you saw in that uh, sport compact market? You know, when I was in it, you know, so I jumped right into the big big boy league. You had Norris Prayonto with the rig. You had big money in that industry. I was honestly, I would admit this, fortunate to leverage. Now, what I mean by that, I worked at Web, mm-hmm. right? I was Web's son, essentially, right? The owners are like parents of me. And they had the, you know, they made the camshafts for the fastest front wheel drive cars. So I'd leverage my relationship with Tony. That My relationship with Tony, as we continue this conversation, has been a big part of everything that I've done. So it's, I leveraged, I leveraged a lot. Okay. There's absolutely no way I could have done what I did with making $50,000 a year. Sure. If I don't even think I made that probably made 40, 40 to 50. There's no way I could have afforded it. Absolutely no way. I mean, Lori and Steve bought my Motec for me, right? For the car. They're the owners of web. They funded the car to go a certain place. Like they were a huge help to that car and me to go racing. So I, I, there was a lot of people doing it because I was after that when I started making we'll get there to me selling turbo manifolds it's the guys that had day jobs wanting to go compete and go fast and that you know we the fast guys gave the younger guys hope but it still takes so much money to compete you break a transmission that's you know eight thousand ten thousand dollars that's a lot of money for a guy that makes fifty thousand dollars a year yeah absolutely you know? and I mean the faster you go and the more power you make unfortunately the more things you break. One hundred percent. So, my I raced it for about a year and a half, and I leveraged the car going so fast. Where I had friends like Ryan, you know, starting their businesses, and 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 Frank from Downstairs. All these acquaintances and friends that were starting businesses, and I had a name at this time, and I didn't have a business, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Right? I I, I loved who I worked for and what I did. But you had no remember- way of leveraging the success that you're seeing at this point because you're working for Web. Yeah. And so, but I'm like, well, Charlie's a great welder. I'm like, I remember my ex-wife and I were sitting down. It was about Christmas time. And she says, why don't you do something with your name? I says, well, what am I going to do? I says, I don't know. Maybe work with Charlie. Do something with Charlie. He's great at welding, right? I was like, yeah, he is. 
So I was like, Charlie, let's like, what if we start making turbo manifolds? I'll give you a cut out of all of them, and we'll put my name on them and we make them out of the garage. Okay, well, how much are you gonna give me a cut? So we figured out how much it costs us to make a manifold at the time, yada yada yada. So we sell them for this much, I'll give you this much. Okay, cool, let's do it. Ghetto rigged, uh, we got this <laughs> my my panel, you know, uh he tapped into the panel, had this thick cable running from the panel to inside the garage, you know, for 220. He had a welder, a plastic table, a little bandsaw from, from Harbor Freight, just cheap tools. And I said, all right, cool. Make a manifold. I posted it on Facebook, started selling them. I'm like, hey, if I can make an extra 200 bucks a week, right? That's, you know, that's 800 bucks a month. That's a lot of money. I could, I could, hey, that could fund the race car. That's what we did it for. Well, that quickly blew up because of how fast the car was going. So my exposure was just huge. So I leveraged off the exposure. Started selling a lot of turbo manifolds. Everyone wanted the same manifold and intercooler. They're all in that car. And I sold hundreds of them, even thousands. Okay. Before how you know how it, is Charlie keeping up with all of this demand? So that's, that's great. So that's a, that's a great question. And so then at, we started with turbo manifolds and we got into intercoolers. And I had um, some other friends that he grew up with that welded with him, started making stuff for me too, you know? And it was just, it was just turbo manifolds. That's all it was first. Then intercoolers. And this is being ran out of my garage, three car garage. So you're and still working full time for Web. This is just I'm a still working full time for Web. My relationship with Web was so great that I I did abuse it to a sense where like I had privileges, right? I could leave early. I didn't take all the manifolds to Web. The shipping department there would ship them for me. So I just had this whole other business running. It was it was going great, smooth, and it was time to be alive, right? Mm. And it just blew up where it was making so much money that it was making me more than Web. Where I was showing up to web for two, three hours a day. My paychecks were a couple hundred bucks, if that, a week. Like it wasn't even worth me going. And my wife was pregnant at the time and I ran the shop out of the garage. And one of the living rooms was like the shipping area. The island in the kitchen was my office. One of the downstairs room was, you know, parts, the turbos. At this point, I started selling turbos, wastegates, the whole nine. And she says, hey, you know, we, we got we to gotta start our family in this house and you can't run your business out of here. So I ran it to like damn near two months before she was due. But then I had I had I had a crossroads in my life, right? I had a crossroads, and my crossroads. Well, do I continue this business or do I shut down this fun hobby, fun cash making thing? Because I my family, I'm about to start a family, and I, I can't run this out of here. Have you got a, an idea at this point with how quickly the demands ramped up, and as you say, you're making more from the side hustle than you are from your day I job? I didn't. That question right there, though, is why I made the choice I was I was about to make. So in, in my perspective, I got, a, I got a mortgage. I got a car payment. I got a wife that's pregnant. It's about to be due. I got a good job, right? 401k, health insurance, the whole nine. Right? I got the American dream, Yep. right? As we like to call it. So I had to make a decision. And at the time, Steve was going to retire from web. He says, Alex, I want to, you to take over my spot, but you need to devote all your attention to this business. You can't devote to your garage little thing and devote to this. I need your attention here. So I'm like, well, must be a tough choice. It was the hardest choice of my life. One of them. It was one on, you know, we have these events in our life that we'll always remember these choices we make. That's one of them. And the wise Alex accepted his offer and accepted the shutdown sheepy out of the garage because I needed to make sure I could provide for my family. Yeah. Makes sense. So I did it. And during the day I had to make sure I wasn't on my phone, nothing. And I spent the next week and a half training with Steve, sitting with Lori, and I was miserable, miserable. And I remember driving home one day, and at the time, this guy named Andrew worked for Tony at T1, and I became friends with uh, Andrew. And, you know, because I I did a lot of business with them. I always called Andrew. I called Tony just to talk, just we were friends. And I told Andrew what I did, 
what I was about to do. And he said to me, Alex, do you think people are going to stop buying turbo manifolds next week? I says, no. Says, are you busier today than you were a month ago? I says, yeah. So do you think people are going to stop buying what you offer in three months? I says, no. Are you going to continue to try to grow it? I says, yes. He says, then I think you know what you need to do. It's all pretty obvious when you lay it out like that, isn't it? <laughs> Much easier said than done, right? <laughs> oh, of course. I mean, these are these are massive life choices that we, we have to make with massive uh, potential outcomes, either positive or negative. So yeah, as you say, easier said than done. And uh, I went home and told my wife and she supported it. And man, things just, we, we, I remember jumping in a car with Charlie and her, like going driving around to look at the industrial areas where we live. And we drove literally a mile away from my house in this little industrial area, four lease, a little 1400 square foot place. We called on it to say it was available. It's 850 bucks a month. I'm like, shoot, how am I going to afford this? Put the numbers together. I was like, we could do this. I signed up for it, told them what I wanted to do. Says, I, I have this little business out of my garage and I want to grow it. And there were a family that owned the spot. I says, well, we, you know, we, we love to see you. Try to help your adventure and hopefully we could help. So yeah, we'll lease it to you. Cool. And so I went back to Web, procrastinated on them, and I sat them down and I was shaking and they already knew what I was gonna say. I said, Hey, I thank you, but I, I'm going to try to chase my dream. And they said, We're proud of you. And if you ever need anything, you give us a call. And if it doesn't work, you always have a home here. It's always the best if you can not burn bridges to to go down the path you want to go. So it sounds like you 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 did the right thing there and it's great that they were prepared to support you. You know, it's more than that. They're my family. Yeah. At this yeah. point, I've worked here for 10 years. They, they, to this day, Lori's like my mom. I call her once every couple of weeks just to check up on her. Love you, son. And call Steve. Steve's retired and has to, you know, and, and I always say they're like the parents I never had because that's a whole other subject. My, my dad, my family never supported my dreams or anything, you know, any of along those lines. Now they're proud of what I've done, but along the road. I never had that support from them. And it's okay, but I had support from these people and they're a huge impact in my life, you know? So yeah, that's where we started. And we started making Honda manifolds and Evo manifolds out of this little shop and intercoolers and had three welders and a little finisher and just selling parts, shipping parts and kept, you know, drag racing the Integra going, you know, we didn't go much faster. And then uh, I still stayed in the front wheel drive stuff where this guy named Sean Ramy, I started helping. He put together a car and we became friends and I started helping him with the MoTeC program and he really focused on going faster. So I stopped racing my car because I was just racing with his car with my name on it and his name on it and going faster and faster and faster. And that, you know, drew business money business to my business, you know, being tuner crew chief of Rami's car. And he was the first car to ever go sevens on a small tire um, with me supporting it in 2017 or 18, I forget. I just want to talk about that transition as well from from racing your own car and obviously now doing it completely off your own back. You don't have that financial support from uh, Webb that you mentioned was so important in the start. You know, a lot of, I think a lot of tuning shops and myself included get to this point where uh, you start to realize the amount of money that you're spending on your own racing program versus the perceived benefits that's getting in terms of exposure, getting customers in the door and what you're making off the back of that versus essentially doing the same for a paying customer and just having your name on the car. Uh, you know, Maybe you, you don't get to actually drive the car yourself. You already mentioned that you'd sort of passed on that anyway. But yeah, is that a difficult choice to make? Like, hey, logically, we should be maybe retiring our own car and just focusing on this customer and, and getting the same exposure, but not pouring a whole bunch of money down the drain every month. 
Yeah, you know the 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 thing with Sean, you know, at this point, I, I had cornered the sport full drive market, selling turbo manifolds and intercoolers, and I'd done quite well. And with racing with Sean, it was more than enough. And another thing is our social media platform wasn't as strong then, but I was very, very uh, always in tune with social media, Instagram, and always posting, knew, knowing how to post, knowing when to post. How pivotal has that been, and I'm guessing more so in, in recent years, but how pivotal has that been in terms of a marketing tool to get you exposure and, and find new customers? All of it. Social media is, is, is today's standard. I, I mean, I, my building is in an industrial area of my city, and my front door is always locked. The retail walking to driving to shops like in the late 90s, early 2000s is a thing of the past. It's all social media and internet-based. That's where I think I've done very well is with social media. We, I have a media team you know, now, but social media has been huge, all of the impact. Let's just sort of bring things up to, to current day and just get a sense of, of what you've grown this, this business into. So we're talking a period here of, of what, a, about 10 years, am I, am I right? Yep, ten years. So yeah, what what's today Sheepy Race look like? Give us a sense of scale, you know, your facility, size, number of staff, etc. So today Sheepy Race, we're in a thirty six thousand square foot facility. There's seventeen to my staff. We mostly specialize in building cars and specifically in the V ten platform. We do ship turbo kits. That's something that I want to be more efficient with. But you know, trying to provide for in house builds and also ship has been a balance, especially with staffing and timing, et cetera. So that's one of the focuses now is just more ship items. We have a media team, techs, welders, shipping uh, managers. Can you give us a sense of over those 17 staff, like how, how are they split? So mechanics, fabricators versus media team? Yep. So I have three techs, one full-time transmission builder, three welders, a finisher, shipping guy, then the media department, and then the managers. Okay. It's a, a fairly large operation that you've got there, quite obviously, with what you're doing these days. Uh, in, in terms of that media team as well, I'm just interested because you, you just touched on how that is like all of it, as you mentioned, in terms of, of marketing the business. It, it can be difficult for maybe those who are a little bit earlier in, in their business path than where you are now to decide to devote funds, which could be you know, the business might not be throwing off a huge amount of profit in the early days, devoting some of that income to paying uh, one or two staff to do the media side of things because the payback's not going to be immediate and also often it, it's hard to quantify, you know, you're putting X into social media and marketing. So you, you sell in Turbo Manifold, you're not necessarily going to know that that is a direct result of a post that was on Instagram, for example. So it's not always quantifiable. So how did you justify that in your mind when you decided that going down, doubling down on this, the social media was going to be the future for marketing? I kind of fell into it. Um, I did well marketing myself. When I moved out here, I, uh, Instagram was pretty big. I had like 100,000 followers at the time, 105. And this kid that worked at a dealership right in front of me, great photographer. And I wanted to have professional style images for my product, uh, for the manifolds, turbo kits, et cetera, the whole nine. I was selling Evo turbo kits. And I really wanted to give my Instagram a professional look where every image that was posted was a high definition edited image, right? Versus a cell phone picture. I'd walk in the back, take a picture of a manifold and post it. I wanted to change the image. And this guy, he says, well, you know, um, he, he worked for this dealership. 
and he wasn't being used to his full talent. He says, Hey, I want to start freelancing. I was, you know, I, I was wondering if I could take pictures for you and edit some hours of the week. He says, Absolutely. So he did it for me and he took pictures for this detail shop and he took pictures for this gym down the street. And as he started with me, just, yeah, I loved what he was doing. I says, Hey, I, I, why don't you just work for me full time, taking pictures and, and posting and, and revamping everything? He says, Okay. And he said, Hey, Alex, I have this idea. I want him to turn our Instagram into this. So he told me his idea. I said, I love it. Let's do it. So that's where we started. And it just made our, our following start growing dramatically. So you're actually sort of seeing the results in terms of the, the growth of the following and obviously the growth of the following, there's a, yes. a knock-on effect to some percentage of those people are likely to buy your products. Right, right. You know, I've never had to pay for marketing ads or any I, I did during Black Friday just because, you know, I wanted to target certain things, but I've always my marketing has always been just us posting and knowing when to post, how to post. But yeah, so it's kind of hard to know what brings you money. It's just you build, you try to build this image of what you want it to look like, and it just kind of comes naturally, right? Like YouTube, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves. But then he was like, we should start a YouTube channel. And my staff was, you know, my mechanic at the time had great personality, everyone has personalities. And at this time, we're already working on like V10s and still shipping turbo kits, working on Ferraris, just all kinds of different cars. And we started our YouTube channel and that grew pretty big. And Alonzo, his name is Alonzo, by the way, the, the kid that had all these ideas, was the one editing the videos and posting them. And we just he just filmed me, you know, walking around, working on cars, explaining things. And it grew and it grew and grew. And before we know it, we're having people that are calling us or emailing us because of these videos. I ne- At the time, I never understood how much of an impact it made. Then when we started asking, over half of our bills are coming because of these videos. And yeah, so between that and Instagram, the way we marketed ourselves, it drew people through the door. But it's always like, a, it's not like you upload something and you get a call right away. Usually it's like time, you know. I had it's a long guy, game, right? It's a long game. It's a long game, you know. And like, uh, and I always ask, where'd you hear about us? Or Oh, I watch all your videos, man. I love what you do. I, I love your videos. I feel like I know you, blah, blah, blah. It's cool, you know? That's cool. I think that that aspect of being real on, on YouTube, it, as I mentioned, it's a long game, but it, it does, the, the subtle part is it builds up the ability of your audience and following to to learn about you, understand you, and that in turn kind of allows them to know, like, and trust you. And, and no one's going to purchase from someone or it's going to be much more difficult for someone to purchase particularly a large sum of money uh, from someone they really don't know anything about. So I think that's that's the element. I mean, our own personal YouTube channel for High Performance Academy, that's the angle we've sort of gone with. It's a, we, we offer a whole bunch of free education and, and that's all it's supposed to be. People will learn about High Performance Academy and what we do. Probably a, a very small percentage of those people will then want to know more about a particular topic and we've got our paid courses that they may therefore go to. But... Other than that, it's just a free education platform that allows people to learn more about us. And that, that I think, is really important. I agree 100%. You know, in theory, in racing, is you race on the weekend, break records, sell on Monday, right? Something along those lines. How I even got into V10s, I sold Hondas, Turbo Kits, Evo Turbo Kits, 2017. And I, the business was doing well. It was growing. And it was Black Friday. I'm going to back up a little bit. And I was sitting on my computer printing out orders. And on Facebook, I see a, uh, an advertised ad come up, Dallas Lamborghini of a white Huracan. It says, ooh, that is badass. One day I'll be able to afford that thing. So I was like, I wonder what it takes to buy one of those. So I call. Hey, what's it take to buy this? 
She says, uh, well, tell me about this. I was like, well, my business, you know, we, we made it about this much so far this year. What's your credit score? I said, that's pretty good. He's like, well, fill out this app. It's worth the shot. So I fill it out. Send it. Calls me an hour later. She says, well, got good news and bad news. I can approve you, but you're going to need to put X amount down. I said, Ooh, that's a lot of money. I don't know if I should do that. It's not smart, you know, but I already <laughs> had it. I already had that itch like in me that I wanted. I was like, well, let me see what I could do. So I said, well, if I give you X amount, can you make the deal happen? He says, I, I might be able to. So then he calls me back. He says, you know what, Alex? I'm going to need more than X amount. I says, oh, my goodness. Well, you, that first amount you told me I could swing, but the second amount, I don't know. Well, we went back and forth with this like three times where that number doubled. Oh. But I already had it in my head. I wanted it. Yeah. You're already was, driving it in your mind at this point. Yeah. So I was banking off this Black Friday sale to do exponentially well to be able to afford this. So I counted my egg before it hatched. <laughs> and I said, let's do it. So let's just stop there. So at, at this point, it sounds like a bit of a off the cuff, you know, heat of the moment decision. Yeah, all heat of the moment. Hurricane. I, I want one. At, at this point, you've got no sort of long term, sort of wider idea of hey, this is a market we can actually we can we can turn this expense into a, a massive advantage for the business. I mean, that was the goal, right? Okay. Like, that'd be cool to build turbo kits for this thing, right? But at the time, I just wanted the car first, okay? So I pull strings to make it happen. Never even driven a Lamborghini. You know, my dream car was a Superleggera, you know, but I'd but I never driven one. And make it happen. I was so excited. It was right before PRI. And the delivery date was the day that I was flying to PRI. And I, was, I wanted to drive it before I flew to PRI. So I asked where the truck driver was, and he was like three hours away. Where I drove, I Ubered to the truck stop to get the car because I wanted to drive it. This was the night before I was flying to PRI. So I get there, find the truck. It was, you know, it was late. He unloads it. Granted, I've never driven one, Russian guy. And I jump in it and I says, How do you put this thing in drive? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Wait, you've never driven one? I says, No. He's like, Be very, very careful. It's very, very fast. Says, okay. <laughs> Showed me how to put it in drive and reverse. My girlfriend jumped in and I was living on top of the world, right? So I can understand. That's how that happened. And then, uh, you know, I knew, you know, Charlie and us were looking at it like one day, let's, you know, we're looking at it. It's like, yeah, let's build a turbo kit for it. But we didn't do that right away. I lowered it, put rims on it. Charlie made this cool center exit titanium exhaust that I still have it. It sits in my showroom and drove it uh, naturally aspirated for probably half a year. Okay. Then fast forward, I became very good friends with Ravi Delwani, owner of CSF Radiators. I don't know if you heard of CSF. Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah, cool. P so, PWR America now, I believe. Yes, yes. And he said, hey, dude, you should twin turbo the Lambo so it's in my uh, CSF with that SEMA. I said, all right, cool, let's do this. So we ripped the car apart to figure out a turbo kit. Charlie built the turbo kit. And I, at the time, Cyvex had a plug-and-play kit for the V10 platform. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to Cyvex. Then they contact, they put me in contact. I actually buy the loom from Wayne Potts. He had the loom. And then I became friends with, at the time, I think he's still heavily involved with Cybex, Boyan. He works for F Performance in Dubai. Okay. So Boyan and I become friends. I said, hey, will you calibrate the car? He says, yeah, you know, he was one of the engineers for Cybex, did the whole nine. So logged in, we fired it up. It was just a pump gas car, stock everything. You know, five pounds of boost in the in the wastegate. I didn't have a dyno, nothing, making rips up and down the street. And got the car done, drove it around twin turbo for a month or so, went to SEMA, displayed it at SEMA, and that's where it started. 
I just wanted to take a moment out of our interview and just talk about a course that I think you'd find really interesting if you are enjoying our chat with Alex, and that is our Practical Engine Building course. Now, while Alex is dealing with 1,000 plus wheel horsepower Lamborghini engines, really when it comes to building a performance engine, the principles of engine building are exactly the same. So it doesn't matter if it's a V10 Lamborghini Huracan engine or maybe a naturally aspirated LS3, a Turbo 2JZ or anything in between. The principles again remain exactly the same. A practical engine building course teaches you the principles behind engine building. You'll learn aspects such as the clearances inside the engine and how to specify the correct clearances for your particular engine and application. You'll learn about the key machining elements that you're going to need to have applied to your engine components and how to deal with your engine machinist in order to get the best possible results. We also incorporate a simple 10-step process that you can apply to building your own engine. Again, this 10-step process is generic. It does not matter what your own engine is. By doing this, each of those individual steps is relatively quick and easy to complete. And in no time you've got to the end of that 10-step process, you've got a completely assembled engine and you're going to have the confidence that everything is assembled correctly, all of the clearances and tolerances inside the engine are exactly where they should be. You're going to know that when it comes to turn the key for the first time, that engine is going to start and run exactly as you'd expect, producing great power, great torque and most importantly, great engine reliability. By following that 10-step process through, it's also going to ensure you don't overlook any critical steps that could waste time, waste money, or even potentially damage your expensive new engine. As part of this course, we also incorporate our library of worked examples. These are an informal walkthrough of that 10-step process, and in this library, we vary the type of engine we're building to give you experience on a wide range of different platforms. This course is delivered via online video modules that you can take anywhere in the world provided you've got internet connection. This gives you the benefit of being able to learn from the comfort of your own place, and you can learn at your own pace. Once you've purchased the course, it's yours for life. Rewatch it as many times as you like. And we also offer a no questions asked 60 day money back guarantee. If you don't like the course for any reason at all, let us know, we'll give you a full refund. We'll put a link to that course in the show notes and remember you can use that coupon code podcast 75, it'll get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. Let's get back to our interview now. Okay, so at, at this point, obviously, you know, Fast forward to today, that, that Lamborghini Hurricane slash Audi R8 market is is very developed. There's a number of players producing twin turbo kits, and you know, three thousand plus horsepower is is not unheard of out of that platform. Back back when you started, how how developed was that market? Is is there a lot of competition? Is it or nothing like it is today? No, no, and I mean, you know, the market like anything, right? It's like the GTR world now. Or the Honda world, you could go online and you could buy a, you know, order a transmission from one guy. You could buy an ECU package or you could buy an ECU. Motec right now is crazy back order, but you could theoretically buy a plug and play kit. You could hit up someone like Rob Harper to tune your car. You could uh, go to the local performance shop that's a distributor for either Boost Logic or AMS. They'll install it for you, they'll tune it and get you on the road. Back then, it was underground and Dallas performance. Okay. Mm-hmm. I met Taylor at at, uh, at PRI. So the next day after I drove the car, I went to PRI and and uh, Taylor commented on my picture on Instagram. Says congratulations, looking forward to seeing what you do. I walked up to him. I says, hey, nice to meet you. And I had all these questions, and he was so nice to me. And he says, listen, I'll answer some questions for you, but there's going to be a lot more no's and yeses. So 
says, well, I appreciate the honesty, right? And I've always, ever since I was young, I was just very fearless. I didn't think a lot. I just, if I had something in my head fixated, I, I, I just do it, figure it out. I just wanted to do it. You know, I networked, I, I used, I leveraged and I just, if I wanted to do something, I do it. I mean, Boyne was in Dubai, I'm in California, two hour difference. And I still managed to build this relationship to be able to tune with him even being 12 hours away. And at the time, Underground was the only ones and they, it was their sandbox, right? Their sandbox. And I always, you know, and everyone, you know, you know, be careful, blah, blah, blah. I said, listen, I'm not, I'm nowhere that caliber near. I'm not trying to take any other business. I don't, nothing, a lot. I mean, nothing. Just as I started tinkering them with more, clearly underground heard of us and uh, they reached out and I would reply to them and I always showed them a lot of respect. People would comment on my stuff. Underground's the best. You know, the typical fanboy stuff, people trying to put people against, right? And I always made it very clear. So listen, underground's on another level. We, we're just doing our own little thing. Nothing crazy. Built a couple cars with Cybex and then um, no flex fuel stuff. So it was just kind of taking off at the time. And I, I was learning on my own, right? Learning this car on my own. There was no Google for this thing. There was <laughs> no. no pick up the phone and, and ask this guy. But I wasn't scared, you know? And it's been my, a double-edged sword in my life in many aspects. And I will admit that. But I wasn't scared. I didn't care that the car was $250,000. You had a car payment. I didn't care. I didn't look at it that way. I never did, never have. Never look at these cars that way at all, honestly. So what what are the challenges then in learning this platform when I'm guessing that Dallas Performance and uh, maybe Underground Racing aren't exactly falling over themselves to, to help you if you did have questions? Like you say, you can't jump on a forum and, and see what, 20 other people are doing in the same situation you're really on your own there well you know the biggest thing uh, you know back then you know, taylor and kevin all their platforms are based around gas i don't think uh, don't hold me to it i don't think taylor i don't think anyone ever pushed the stock engine on on ethanol to see what the capabilities i mean they're you know at the time, everyone thought, you know, at a 900,000 horsepower, these stock long blocks are going to break. You know, you got to do builds, et cetera, which is the case on, on pump gas, right? But let's fast forward a little bit. Um, well, not fast forward, but I was starting to do more and I was talking to Tony. I ran into Tony at World Cup one year. He was pitted next to us. I was just expressing some stuff to him, some some hurdles I was kind of you know, trying to overcome and things that I was, I was going through. And he says, Hey, Motec, you know, in the process of, you know, of doing a plug and play kit for the V10 stuff. I said, that's cool. He's like, would you like to, t- you know, want the first one we could, you know, test it. I says, well, I remember I said, I- I'm a big fish in a small pond with Cybex. I don't want to be a small fish in a big pond with Motec. Like I, I need support. Like everything's based off support. You know, I think people overlook that, you know, there's an expectation you get an ECU shipped to you, plug it in and, and, and that's it. You're on your own. And you deal with it by yourself, but you know, there's always going to be questions, no matter what level you're working at, whether you're cutting edge and, and leading the way, or you're you know, a backyard enthusiast building a car in, in your shed. You, you're going to have questions, so that manufacturer support really is so critical, isn't it? Very critical. And at this point, it's new. Yeah, I mean that, that's the other element with with something now that is this complicated. The torque based models, the the mm-hmm. integration with the DCT transmission. It's likely that as you develop it and start using it, you're also going to find weaknesses or areas that need maybe a new feature. Uh, so getting the manufacturer on board to to go and continue developing that as you find new things that you want included, again, that, that becomes really, really powerful. 
So as we all know, and I need to talk about it, Tony is leading one of the leading tuners of the MoTeC in the world, right? In my opinion. And um, I says, well, you know, my concern and support is like, listen, don't worry about that. I was like, do you have time to help me with this? Like, yeah, I'll make time. She's all right. <laughs> so I bought two kits. Everyone had two kits sent to me and I had a car. I says, all right, I got a car. I just got done, you know, building the fuel system. Let's go ahead and install the MoTeC. And I knew this would take some time. So we planned to have this car just strapped on the dyno to, you know, for lots of revisions. The car sat on the dyno probably for maybe two weeks before it came off of just for more updates, you know, ran into some issues. Tony would send the log over to Darren. Darren would update the firmware. We'd load it back and forth, week and a half, two weeks. By the time we were done, that car had like revision I was just recently I logged back into that car and it was like version 58 or something, <laughs> you know, by the time I'm done now, I'm on like V3, V4, if that right before they leave. So that goes to show you how many revisions we did. Right. I mean, so much It's crazy and got it running good. Then we did my personal R8, got it running good. And we just kept evolving. Now at the time, the cars are only making 800 stock clutch, stock everything. And then I, I realized that I needed some TCM files for more line pressure. So I started, you know, I reached out to Unitronic, which were, you know, they're huge in the VAG world. And I said, you know, would you guys be interested in, I know you guys do the DQ500s and doing some DL800 stuff. And I says, well, we think we can, very similar. So started working with them, developing some TCM files to do what we needed the transmission to do. And that worked great. And then, you know, making eight, 900 horsepower. It's like, well, that's a lot of horsepower. What are we doing here, right? Flex fuel. And it's not that I didn't want to build the engine. The thing is, I couldn't afford to build the engine. <laughs> so I'm going to keep pushing this thing. I, there must be a bit of a fear there. It's it's not like uh, maybe adding a bit more boost to a, a, an internally stocked B18C where within reason you're going to be able to pick up another engine and it's probably not going to break the bank. I, I can't... I, can't imagine a new block no. for a, a V10 uh, Lambo is going to be super cheap. Can I be honest with you? Yeah, absolutely. That never even crossed my head. <laughs> never crossed my mind. That was not my, I, I, and I'm telling you, it's a double-edged sword of me being so aggressive with things, right? So I then bought a clutch from Datsun, I believe. Yes, my relationship started with Datsun, trying to remember. Put a clutch in it at the time, those sportsmen's. So it was just the clutch with the inner cages and put it in the car, had our TCM file. And I remember being on the dyno and we pushed it and made a thousand horsepower. <laughs> it must have and been pretty Tony, satisfying. Oh, me and Tony were like, oh my God. Correct it. Like, we, we got to be careful. This thing's, this thing's for sure going to blow up. We're blowing <laughs> this thing up. This was like 12 pounds, 11, 12 pounds of boost. And I remember this like it was yesterday. It was like 12 pounds of boost, but that's a lot of boost. We just made a thousand <laughs> horsepower, right? He's like, all right. So, you know, took it out in the street and uh, I, I just never leave anything alone. So I would keep getting logs and, you know, things look happy, knock look good, everything looked good, everything looked good. And let's just go, you know, then I started chasing draggy times. So like, let's just go up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And we kept going. And my dyno, I had a, I had a all-wheel drive Mustang dyno. This is my fault. By the way, I will, I will begin by saying this is my fault. I, I, I didn't have a setup right. And it bred really low. And Dial said it made a thousand, eleven hundred, and never, you know, but on 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 the street, we, we turned the boost up and these things started running numbers. And I never really knew. Tony and I just kind of guesstimated. They're making, you know, at this point, I'm started running quick draggy numbers, you know, mid, you know, high threes, mid threes, and stock engine, you know, and, and the internet's like, oh, this thing's gonna blow up. You need a built motor for, you know, thirteen hundred horsepower. And they never blew up. And I kind of quickly made a name for myself because 
I was making 1300 horsepower running these quick draggy numbers on multiple cars on a stock engine. They're flex fuel, Motec with the clutch. And they were putting up some good draggy numbers, which everyone in America was all about. These draggy 60 to 130 numbers. Yeah, that sort of become the, the gold standard for a performance number now. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I caught a lot of heat. You know, all the, you know, brake and, you know, it's, you know, then one car went like 330 or something and everybody said I was lying. And it's just, so I questioned myself a lot. I'm like, well, are are we doing something wrong? Like we're only going faster and faster and faster. And at the time, Tony was, you know, he still does work with me in in the background where I started getting a lot of attention online where Tony had to go and be like, Hey, he's, he's not lying. The data is backed up. Like Mm -hmm. I I see, I see the data, you know, and, uh, I opened the door, I feel that I opened the door to all the other small shops that like, oh, that this guy's not breaking these stock engines. Maybe we can put turbo kits. And at this point, Motec is plug and play. You can buy it from your Motec dealer. And, you know, AMS jumped in and, you know, makes a great fuel kit for the car. And I wasn't selling any of my product, you know, that I was doing to the outside world. I was just doing it for my builds, my cars. Let's just stop here and just come back a, a, a touch. There's a few things I wanted to to expand on a little bit. So uh, you, you've sort of mentioned this flex fuel element, and mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing here that it's using the E85 or ethanol-based fuel is, is what's really unlocked the, the performance potential in terms of being able to run higher boost levels with without running into knock, which I can only imagine would be a, a major issue if you are limited to pump gas. So that, that's the first question. Am I right there? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. Coming back to a pure pump gas setup, it sounded like you'd you'd sort of alluded to maybe the 800, 900 horsepower. Is that kind of about the limit in terms of a a safe, reliable pump gas setup that also isn't going to require work on the DCT transmission? Did I pick that up right as well? Yes, to a sense. So like, to be honest with you, I I won't push a pump gas car. Uh, My stage one stuff is pump gas and they make probably... Uh, on 91, 780-ish, 800 okay. tops. 93, I could get 840s, maybe, on stock fuel system, the whole nine. Now, if you put MS-109 or race gas, you could, you know, break the 900s. I've never done that. Um, I, You know, I, I our base stuff, even like in Motec right now, if you run a full tank of, you know, pump gas, the torque limit is really, really low in Motec. You know, um, timing's really low, et cetera. So they don't make much power on, on pump gas. Sure. Okay. Now, the other thing, the internet's going crazy about these numbers saying that you're full of shit and it's not real. You know, 1,300 horsepower in, in reality for a, a V10 engine, 5.2 litres. I, I, I kind of try and break down more. I'm not so interested in the specific, like the, the ultimate power level, 1,300. I, I look at it more from a specific power level per cylinder. And I mean, we're, we're talking obviously 130 horsepower per cylinder. Because it's the components in that cylinder that really need to support the the power you're making in terms of Correct. strength of components, conrods, pistons, etc. That's not much. I mean, if we take that back out to a, a four-cylinder engine, we're talking a, a touch over 500, 520 horse, which, I mean, that that is definitely something that most people would consider in this day and age quite achievable, particularly on E85. Am I, am I right? Yes, but in the V10 world, the Lambo world, it's not looked at. It wasn't looked at like that, right? Just because no one's done it before, though, right? Maybe they have, but never marketed or told anybody. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know Taylor was doing E85 stuff. I don't know how much he pushed stock engine stuff. I think there's also there's also a belief that if you want to make power, then the engine must be built. 
And I think that's sort of borne out by all of the builds we see on the internet and magazines, right. etc. There are always built engines. That, that's just a go-to if you want to double the power the engine's making. Obviously, you have to throw away all the factory components and, and fit aftermarket. I, I really think with the technology in a lot of these modern engines, that that is often a step backwards. And and I do remember as well talking to Tony in our interview, Tony Palo, and and he mentioned they, they kind of got tripped up by this with the VR38 platform and very quickly went to sleeving the blocks because that was the thing you did. Mm-hmm. And they had nothing but trouble. And after a while, they actually came back to just running the stock unsleeved block. And I, I can't remember the specifics now. It was in that interview. But I, I think he sort of said you know, that they'd made 17, 1800 horsepower uh, on a stock unsleeved block. And really the only reason or one of the main drivers that he ended up going to the billet blocks was just simply because they wanted to build these bigger bore 4.1 litres, which were just not mm-hmm. possible on the stock engine. So I Long story short, I I think people underrate the potential of a lot of these factory engines until it gets to a point where there's enough people out there doing it and some of the common weak points start to become known. And obviously when you know there's a weak point, yes, that has to be fixed. So yeah, just just wanted to say I I, I think people jump on the built engine bandwagon often a a little bit too early. Do, Do you agree with that? Yes and no. I mean, there's level, there's levels to this. Obviously, if you want to make two and a half thousand wheel horsepower and and you know be running very quick times, yeah, that that's a different that's a different kettle of fish altogether. Yeah, you know, um, it just depends on what your pla- your, your your packages are, 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 are what fuel. I will say this: there's no way you can you know safely make over a thousand on normal gas on these engines. You know why they have been able and why so many people make you know. The power they do is based all around just ethanol fuels. Yeah, yeah. Um, couldn't agree. So, you know, that's that's what it all comes down to. I think we've seen since ethanol E85, and then you know the, the race specific ethanol blends from the likes of VP have become so common. Uh, it actually worries me a little bit because there's a generation of tuners coming through now who have almost never tuned on pump gas, and when you're tuning on a good quality E85 fuel you can, in a lot of circumstances, almost completely forget about knock. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I'll temper with that with, yes, it, it, you definitely can make the engine knock on, on E85, but for, for what most people are doing, it's something we can almost forget about. So we get a, a, a generation of tuners coming through, I think, who really haven't learned just how sensitive an engine is to knock when you're on a low-octane fuel like pump gas. And hence, they don't even worry about knock, knock control, audio knock detection. It's equipment uh, they they just have never used. And I'm always a little nervous to what would actually happen if that tuner ended up having to go and tune something on pump gas because I I think they'd be in for a world of hurt. I don't know if you agree with with what I'm saying there. World of difference, pump to ethanol. I mean, these cars on pump gas versus ethanol, it's the same boost levels. I'll pick up 120, 130 horsepower, you know, just from timing. I pushed it. I pushed them. And, you know, where a lot of people started questioning stuff. But uh, I always stayed in my lane. I always have stayed in my lane. I market things different. I use social media. And companies like Underground, uh, they have always held records. You know, they're, Kevin is old school style of guy. You know, he's been around for a long time from his Mustang Viper days where they run records, they build street cars, and he's done great at it he's you know I, I know him we talk and so you know i just always have made sure to show my respect and stay in my lane and not start any trauma like that you know so no it's worth worth mentioning that as well because i think we see this in any 
uh, on any platform that is popular and there's a lot of enthusiasts backing different shops and, and different cars that have been built and obviously rivalries come up and and I think what you're saying there is, is really important. I mean, the market is big enough to support a number of workshops doing this and yes, the, the enthusiasts are going to have their favourites and, and that's fine. What I what I think there's there's no room for is disrespect. And I mean, more often than not, I think we see this probably from the enthusiasts. I, I follow Underground and you know I follow T1 and there's always a bit of uh, heated back and forth, usually again between their followers, not actually the shops, uh, particularly with that GTR versus uh, Lambo R8 market. You know, there's, there's a lot of heated back and forth and, and I think it's really important to to show that respect like you're talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what the situation is in the US. I mean, here in New Zealand, where when I was racing, we, we had a handful of workshops, and, and generally we all we all got on pretty well. It, there wasn't any sort of animosity between us. Right. Uh, here in the States, it's, it's, it's a lot of the, 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 the followers and the fans that, um, uh, granted, they're still from shop to shop. You know, you know there's, you got men racing, you got testosterone in men. You know, we, <laughs> you know it's, it's normal. Right, but the biggest thing with me is always keeping my relationships as clean as I can. I'm guilty of, you know, one time I said something that I shouldn't have said, and it backfired bad on me, you know. But uh, you just want to keep things healthy, you know. It this V10 industry has become a little cutthroat. You got a lot of people entering it and uh, trying to make a name for themselves. And I will tell you, I'm an I am a target for a lot of people, and it's okay. Like I, I've become a target where, to the point, there's, you know, it, it's just it's pretty bad, you know. It's it's where it's like. I I don't go looking for drama. I just I, I keep my hands clean, you know. But uh, sometimes drama know. finds you, regardless. Yeah, it's just it's just you know when you when you have a big following, big social media following, you, you know you're big, you're you're under the spotlight. There's pros and cons to it. There's a lot of pros and cons. I, th- I think there's a certain element of tall poppy syndrome that comes in here, where others don't like to perceive people doing well, which which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a, a situation we face. Uh, I mean, I, I, I chase drag racing pretty hard in the V10 platform. I still do. Everybody quickly realized it is very, very expensive to do. Okay. These gearboxes are not cheap. You know, they come from New Zealand and the parts, the components. If one thing breaks, as you know, the next doesn't that, you know, you fix one thing and it's the next thing, it's the next thing and they break. You know, it's not if, but when. I mean, I, I made a YouTube video about transmissions a couple of weeks ago explaining to people, like, the internet won't tell you this, but I will tell you this. These things break. And when I interview people about building a car, I ask them, what are their goals? And always race within your means. You know, don't go trying to make 2,000 horsepower. I, I think there's a perception. I've talked about this on the podcast before uh, from enthusiasts looking at builds on the internet, magazines, Instagram, whatever it may be. And 2,000 horsepower just is a number you've just thrown out there thinking that they, they spend the money, whatever that, that dollar value might be, to get the car built at that power level, uh, the supporting modifications such as the transmission that's going to go along with that power level, and then they think they're done. And uh, basically, we put fuel in the car, uh, maybe an oil change every 10,000 miles, and uh, we're good to go. But obviously, th- there's a reality that's slightly different to that perception. You know, what what sort of service intervals are you looking at with a car at that sort of 2,000 horsepower level and, and what sort of things do need continuous upkeep? You, you've mentioned the DCT transmission. I'm guessing that's a, a constant battle. Oh, huge battle. It, it, it's development and the growth of the technology in the transmission has is, is grown dramatically for people like us, right? What I mean by that is, I will say this, Underground will come up a lot. Underground 
as had billet gears made by Emco contracted out specifically for them. So, you know, they've been doing this for 15 years. So, you know, it, so then clearly Emco is not going to sell to this new V10 guy, Alex. So then Dotson, you know, started making parts. We get them, we test them, find breaking points, take it all apart, go back to the drawing board, continue to improve components in the transmissions. So now we're at a good point where I could say that the development has grown so rapidly that the parts are holding up. We have great clutches. There was a time there where, and, and I'll talk about this a little bit, is the clutches started failing and nobody had answers. I had this clutch in 17 cars and they started failing. One at a time started coming back and we didn't know why. I remember sitting there with Dotson. What do we do? It was scary. at 17 cars. Mm. And all of them had to come back from all over the country and they cost me a lot of money, you know, and, but we figured out the clutch and kept going. And Dotson has been a phenomenal company of backing their product. They, you know, stand behind their product. Probably one of the best companies I've been fortunate, fortunate with to work with. Clutches work, gears work, ring opinions work. Everything's working. It's holding up so far and you still break, you know, you'll break a, a dog on a gear here, you know, here and there got axles the whole nine but they break and they've broken and they cost money you know and they will still break you know one of the biggest things is okay you got gears and everything that works you're making 2,000 horsepower clutches wear right so i always tell people your clutch is gonna wear not a forever thing you know you might break a dog on a gear you might round off the dog you know and well well you know my friend has a car built by this guy and you know i says okay well i guarantee you it happens over there as well you know there's no magic here I assure you it happens everywhere else. These DL800s, they're so sensitive. Either they work or they don't work. Okay, you run, you you adapt them, they work. You know, there's a couple things you could leave the pinion loose or, you know, too tight, you'll hear it or, you know, could possibly damage something like that. But everything's so precise in these transmissions. It's not like an engine. You could leave a bearing too loose and oil pressure is low. It'll still run until something seizes up or, you know, piss into wall is not what you want it. Transmissions are a lot more crucial than an engine is um and i and i try to explain that to people you know it's just like parts these aftermarket parts when you go racing are going to fail they can fail and don't be mad when they do yeah i think um being realistic about goals and the financial ramifications of those is, is important at the at the outset as you said r- race within your means or you know, build, build a car within your means and that's really important uh, just can can we get like a, a ballpark number because we've never really discussed this previously on the podcast as well. You know, one of these built transmissions, and I, I do understand there's obviously stages to this, so it's hard to give a, a black and white number. But can you sort of ballpark us if we're two thousand wheel horsepower and, and we we want to build this thing for drag racing? You know, what what sort of money are we into for a transmission to suit? So my essentially what we refer to stage six transmission is fifty six thousand dollars. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're not talking chump change. No, it's a lot of money. And you don't see a lot of very, very um, competitive V10 drag cars. They are unbelievably expensive, right? So I have under uh, competitive drag guys, I have probably five guys, uh, one hand, right, of, of guys that m- want to compete and make the, you know, north of 2,000 horsepower. But they know the services and the maintainings and the what else with these cars. I market to street guys, to all around guys. My normal customer is a, you know, anywhere from a 1300 to 1500 horsepower build. And at that sort of power level, are we getting reasonably good reliability out of them? I can only imagine it's going to be a, obviously a lot easier. It's a lot easier. 
I would say yes. I, I would say a higher percentage of you know being reliable. Anytime you launch these things, you know it's just strained parts. Again, development's gotten better. It's the factory. You know anything above thirteen hundred horsepower, we like to recommend billet gears, just because the factory gears now you're starting to see them. I'm starting to see them break more. A lot of factors in that too, right? You're, you're getting cars with more miles on them. Yeah, I would say the happy spot's like twelve hundred. That's still 12, an incredibly fast road car. Unbelievably fun. I mean, and it's it's as ridiculous as this sounds, and it's time to be alive. Great time to be alive is you actually get to utilize that power. Yeah. I, I'll drive home. I, I live about four miles from my location, and I could. I, two options: I could take the street home, I could jump on the highway, and on as I merge onto the highway, I could just lay into this thing. By the time I'm hitting the freeway, I'm going you know 140, 150 mile an hour in top of six <laughs> gear and quickly stop. You know, so you could use it. I think that the bit that's easy to overlook is, I mean, if you roll that back to, to the Honda days, I mean, to build a B18C, for example, with a comparable increase in power level over factory, you've got this really angry engine that doesn't idle that nice, hmm. uh, horrible drivability, no power probably below about 6,000 RPM, and, and then it's going to hit like a sledgehammer. Whereas uh, I'm not speaking here from personal experience, but the, those I've talked to, you, you sort of take that 13, 1500 horsepower V10, you've got obviously more cylinders, you've got a lot more capacity, and it's going to drive essentially like stock off boost, no horrible idle, no holes in the torque curve, and then lay into it, and it's just got more everywhere. Is that, is that a sort of a reasonable kind of comparison between the two? I, absolutely. I always say that you could you could jump in a 1500 horsepower V10, go racing, pick up your mom for breakfast on Sunday, drive it normal. She would never even notice it's modified. That, they, they, they drive phenomenal. I'm just interested with the DCT transmissions because this again is a recurring theme that they are problematic just about no matter how much money you, you throw at them. Uh, particularly in the R8 and Huracan market, uh, there are uh, conventional sequential dog box transmissions for the likes of the GT3 program, admittedly at mm-hmm. much lower power levels. Is that a, a, a direction that is worthy of pursuing? At this point, I would say no. Now, you know, before Datsun offered everything they do now, let's just go back to underground really quick. Their fastest car in a half mile is a sequential car. Now, my opinion, again, no hold me to it, is because why they go into sequentials for clearly clutch reasons, being able to withstand the power, okay? They've always been the leading company for this VT and stuff, and they've gone very fast with DCT, currently do have the record in DCT and and half mile and and drag currently. So clearly they have clutches that work. But in my opinion, why people have ran sequential is clearly for the just simplicity of clutch to be able to handle the power to put the power down. Now with clutch technology... You know, I've personally, my highest is probably 24, 2500 wheel that, you know, we've made. And that's literally right in the edge of the clutch, you know, running as much line pressure as we can. Since then, though, Datsun has even more recently came out with a billet hub where you would have put more frictions and steels in it to make more power. So at this particular time in our industry, there is no benefit in going to sequential. Three years ago, four years ago, yes. I mean, I guess... The, the thing is, as this market continues to, to develop and people want to go faster and want to make more power and hence the transmission becomes that weak point, you sort of just go around in this iterative loop of upgrading the engine, the turbos, making more power and then coming back to the transmission and obviously there's a market there for, for Dodson 
they want to be able to provide products that are going to support more power. So yeah, I think what I like about this industry is people are, get pretty creative and pretty inventive and, and when there is uh, a carrot at the end of it in terms of being able to support more torque through that clutch, people will find a way. Obviously, there is still, we're working within the bounds of the the room available because it's an OEM component. But um, yeah, I think it sounds like there's, there's probably still some potential in that transmission yet as people continue to push it further. It, it's all, it's, it all comes down to clutch at this point. I feel that the gears and the diffs and the ring and pinions, all that's good. It's just clutch, being able to withstand the torque, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. I think we'll move on from here. It's been really interesting getting that that sort of insight on that market. And I, I did want to find out how you did that transition from from Honda to VTM. We've covered that off, even though it sounds like it was a bit of a spur of the moment whim thing that's obviously worked exceptionally well. Uh, are you continuing to to look at other platforms in terms of what's coming up, what might be worth supporting, or have you just got your plate completely full with, with what you're doing at the moment? We're always looking, right? We're always looking. My plate is full to the point that I'm in the process of trying to scale the business as far as it's a lot to handle, right? And what, what are the, the sort of challenges in terms of scaling that business? What are you facing at the moment? I don't have any background in business management or et cetera. So as we got busier, I thought that growing the building would be what was needed, et cetera. Now I have such an understanding of how much I could do a month as far as what, how many cars we could build, what's sustainable. And, you know, we don't utilize, I could utilize a building that's probably half of this, right? So I'm just going to cut overhead down to just enjoy it a little bit more, right? I mean, I enjoy what I do, but it's, it's, I've reached the limit of, I know what I could do a week, what I could do a month. And I just, you know, based off that. So in terms of finding staff, that, that's sort of something that everyone I talk to who's in business finds it, it challenging. Staffing is the hardest one that, that has been, oh, I mean, draining. It just, I used to be very hands-on Yeah. up until a year and a half ago. Okay. I was very hands-on with everything, the way I wanted to, I mean, the whole rule book back there is written by me, the way I want a car plumbed, how lines are ran, everything is how I want it, not how they want it. But in a time of growth, such a rapid growth rate, you hire people that you think you could trust, do a good work, and then tend to slack off or not, you know, care about the quality or, you know, just lots of little things, you know, and it's been hard finding the right staff. And that's part of the reason why I want to downscale because I could take in more built, but that means I need more staff. That means I need to train more people. And that, I mean, funneling through more headaches. Yeah. Funneling through people that actually do the work quality that you want. I can't sit there and watch them. I have to sit in the office. I have to order parts. I have to troubleshoot some cars. I have to support cars. I can't overlook everybody's job. So you need people that you can trust, that you can set them on a task and, and they're going to complete it to your level of, of quality. My biggest problem as an individual, okay, is thinking because I pay somebody what they want, they're going to give me what I want. That's absolutely wrong. I'm, I've always been the, the, the leader in my, on my ship that, how much do you think you deserve? How much do you, you want to make? Okay, I will give you that, but I expect this in return. And we move on. My biggest problem has always been that. So I had to learn the hard way when, you know, mess ups happen and they cost the company money, big money, okay, that I'm trusting too much. So 
I was so thankful and grateful to have the techs that I have now. And my main tech actually comes from the Honda world. Okay. Built some cool Hondas, built Hondas out of his garage on the weekends. And I took him in, I gave him a shot. And the guy is freaking perfectionist. He learns quick, wants to learn everything. I mean, he's Alex teach me this. Alex teach me that. He has learned so much that I don't have to be out there as much. And he knows he overlooks the other two guys, which are both exceptional workers, but he is like right under me now. In the, in, in, as far as the tech goes, he knows how to problem solve. He knows exactly how plumbing, how fueling works. He knows wiring. Like I have a, in my shop, I have this thing for plumbing and wiring. I, I, I love wiring and I love plumbing. Those are the two things that I've loved since the beginning that I still love now. Right. And I'll go back there and I'll sit down and I'll, th- I'll wire or I'll plumb. So I got a BMRS crimper, I got an XRP crimper, I got every wiring tool, every size gauge wire, every size DR25 you can think about. Like I, I get a professional guy that wires could come sit here and build a loom from scratch. Right? I have everything. And so he's learned it all, you know, and he continues to learn. If he doesn't know something, he asks versus trying to take it upon himself to do it his way and be the wrong way. Right. But it was a hard lesson to A, not trust as much when you hire staff let them build the trust versus giving them the trust and then taking it back. That's been my biggest flaw is I give all the trust and then these things happen. It's like, Oh my God, at the end of the day, I have to deal with it. Right. I am, I am the face of it. Not you. You're at home on a six o'clock Saturday, you know, enjoying your time, but I have to deal with it. And that's been the hardest and most draining part about being a leader and, and, and having staff. I guess the other element when you sort of scale up from dealing with uh, a Honda platform, which is obviously a lot more affordable than uh, a Huracan, when things go wrong, the scale and magnitude of that financial disaster also scales up along the cost of the car. Oh my goodness, yes. It's. I mean, I've had some situations where I have PTSD from it, right? And it's and it's okay, right? Like. The learning, the things that I've learned and I've, 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 I've come to now, it's I, I give people advice. You know, when I go out, I have date night with my fiance every weekend. It's a must. And I'm pretty well known in the automotive industry, I would say. And because of my YouTube channel, people will recognize me and talk to me about certain stuff. And I tell people all the time and I live by it. Less is more. Less is more. Keep it less because it's, it's when you do a lot, you have a lot going on, it, it you will lose sight of why you started this, right? What You lose sight of the passion of the things that made you drive to get to this point in business or to start a business. You know, when you get to, you know, a staff of 16, 17 people to me is a lot. That's 16, 17 families. I have to make sure I fed every week, mm. right? Yeah, there's um, there's definitely a, an onus of responsibility on on any business owner to to look after their staff because they are relying on you. Uh, for yeah. for their well being as well. Uh, just in terms of staffing, you, you mentioned you, your head tech and and how you can now basically trust him to to work at your standard unaided, and that's so rare. And uh, when you do come across it, so valuable. How then do you sort of recognise that and incentivise him to to stay and not jump ship? Because obviously it's a cutthroat world out there. Uh, you know, it's it's easier to have staff members that are, are poached oh, yeah. by competing businesses. I've been in that position. I've lost uh, one, two, three, four, at least five, six guys taken by other businesses. Promised the world, oh, it's going to be better. We could be the sheepy number two. There, at this point, there should be five sheepies out there because everybody's, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's just keeping it real. But 
I guess I can't really answer that question 100% other than taking care of them, right? Take care of your staff. I will say this, and maybe I'm saying too much. I look for certain things. I look if he has a family. He's got responsibilities. Where is his family located? Is his family really tied into where they live? Or is it a single 26-year-old dude that could literally pack his duffel bag and jump on a plane and go to Florida? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't really considered that. Right? So those are the things that I look at now. How much responsibility do you have when you're not here that you getting up and leaving would be a dramatic impact on your life? Yeah. Right? So there's not a lot of E10 shops. There's a lot of people jumping into them, but they're scattered all over the country the world. Right? So my guys, all my techs, married with kids and mortgages. Okay? So they have responsibilities. Lots of it too. Right? And it's my job to make sure that I could fulfill enough work and enough pay to fulfill their responsibilities, right? Yep. I, I get very alarmed when I, you know, I, there's been a couple of times I'd hire, you know, single guy. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to discriminate or saying they're all like that, but I look at these things because I've been in situations where I've lost valuable employees due to somebody down their ear, you know? And I'm not saying they don't get messages. I know they do. I mean, honestly, my manager, my shop manager, his name is Nick. You know, he's worked for, a couple other performance shops all over the country. At one time, I'll openly say this, we he left here to go try something out and the grass wasn't greener on the other side. And we were friends and we talked and he told me what he wanted improved and I, he came back and we've improved this relationship. Your, your, your employees, you have relationships with them and you always have to improve them. Just because you're the owner doesn't mean you just do whatever the hell you want, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, not just a, a case of making sure you've got uh, an employee that is... Um set down roots and, and has some commitment to, to remaining. I mean, obviously, goes without saying, you also need to be a good employer uh, and offer them the incentives that they need or what, what they need to feel valued and give their best because otherwise the, the situation is not going to work for either party, correct? Correct, correct, right, you know. And then you have your workers that you know the limits. That I always, I, I always go back on this. As much as we're a big business, we work eight to five. We're still, we still build race cars, right? And shit happens, and you got to stay till six, seven o'clock to get a car done because transport's going to be here the next day. I got two, I, you know. I know which employees I could push and which ones I can't, yeah. right? So I, I, we call him Pop. Pop is fifty years old. Pop shows up exactly at seven fifty nine and leaves exactly at five oh one. Okay. Yeah. But Pop. Works his hours at a steady pace. You can count on him. Does perfect job. Things happen here and there, but he is a great tech. And I got my middle one, all right, David. David will stay a little late if you want him to, you know, but same thing. Then you got Alex, my lead tech. Yeah, that guy will stay till eight o'clock to finish the car or get here at seven, you know, five in the morning to get a head start because I firmly said, I want this car on the dyno at 11 o'clock when, when I'm done with my meeting. And he will do what it needs to happen to do that. Right. But he's also a race car guy, right? He's builds drag Honda has been racing his whole life. He's a race car junkie at heart. So I relate to him on many levels because I started this from that same thing, being diehard race car guy, building Hondas out of my garage. So we were late. And, and another thing is, so my, my uh, nationality is I'm Mexican. Okay. So, you know, every culture has its own way of being or communicating or talking. All cultures do, right? Yeah. Well, he's Hispanic too. So our cultures, we understand one another, how we communicate and we talk. And I could be that way with him and he understands it. So there's many levels of understanding one another and him understanding me and, and vice versa because of culture, come from the drag race world, the Honda world. You know what I'm saying? 
and that guy I could push. So it's understanding who could do what, when they could do what, and when not to, and when you can push them to do things that, you know, come out of the norm. So yeah. Makes that sense. makes sense. Reading people, essentially. Yeah. All right. One last question before we move on, just in terms of the the direction of the business. Uh, You've mentioned these in-house builds. You've got these turbo kits that you're supplying as a turbo kit. In terms of actual products, maybe not the turbo kits necessarily. I mean, I've I've seen for the V10 market, you're you're making your own inlet manifolds, plenum chambers, uh, CNC billet alloy plenums. Is that a direction in terms of making more products that, that you're interested in pursuing? Or do those only come as a, a result of you see a hole in the market or you need a product, so you fill it yourself? Those products came because I needed it for myself. Yeah, okay. Uh, it didn't come because I wanted. Now, granted, now I've sold them to other people, but I'm very different from like an AMS, right? AMS, as you know, manufactures parts, has a great big dealer program, et cetera. That's so, not a direction you want to pursue? No. Maybe a little bit more, but not to the extent that they do. No. Fair enough. Okay. All right, look, Alex, I think we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this thing up. And we like to finish all of our interviews with the same three questions we ask all of our guests. Uh, the first of those, and I guess to a degree maybe you've touched on it, but let's see what else you can bring to the table here. What's next and in the future for you and Sheepy Race? That's a great question. I, I'd like to target more of the everyday consumer, use my reach to offer product and support to the guy that is into, you know, Audi RS3s or S4s or RS6s, more of instead of catering to the, you know, 2% that own 1% to 2% that mess with these V10 platforms, get my hands into the other platforms to be able to offer support for them as well. You know, I do notice that we have a huge following that loves what we do and want our support. So we're going to start offering more support into other platforms, mm-hmm. um, more of the everyday stuff versus these builds that, you know, take weeks, months at a time. So. Along those same lines of supporting these other platforms, uh, are you still supporting the Honda and Evo platforms as much as you did in the past? As much as I did in the past, no, but we still do. Um, That's actually a a department that I'd like to um, have sales on, focus on a little bit more to cater to them more versus the amounts that we do right now. We did put a lot of focus into the V10 platform. So right now what I'm going to do is just control it a little more and then help everyone else out as well. Yeah, makes sense. All right, next question. Is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself or perhaps one of our listeners uh, that would help reach where you've got to in your career, maybe a little bit faster, or maybe avoiding some of the potholes that you inevitably come across on your travels? I would say achieving this level faster is not probably a wise thing to do because there's so much that you learn throughout the time. The best thing and the best advice I could give anyone is just make sure you keep your passion to it and always remember less is more. If I could tell a younger me is less is more, Alex, you know, we tend to shoot for the stars, but sometimes the responsibility and everything that comes with the stars is more than we can handle and want. So just be very careful. Less is more. That's really, really good advice there. I think the first part you said there about what you learn along the way and if you'd built to where you are much faster, a a lot of that gets lost. So I think a, a lot of people you know, want to, to reach your level of success in, in maybe one to two years. But I mean, A, probably that's not realistic. And B, as you say, you're going to miss all those lessons that, that you, you learn along the way. And to your point of less is more, yeah, I, again, couldn't agree more. I've been guilty in the past, probably still now, of, of trying to do too much. And I think 
you spread yourself too thin and as a result what you end up doing is is not really a great job of of any of the stuff that you're doing i think the other thing that comes from being a business owner and again i'm really guilty of this is i, I call it the shiny object syndrome and once you've developed a business and that business sort of becomes a bit of a process you do xyz and you get a result at the end of it and really if you want to get more result you just have to keep going with the process but you know, after you've been doing that same process for five or ten years or whatever it may be you, know, you start seeing sort of opportunities off to the side and these shiny little objects which look really appealing but they also take your eyes off the prize of, of that process, that business that you know works and just needs your input to continually do. So I think a lot of people suffer from that, as I say, myself included. Right, last question for today, Alex, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, where are they best to do so? Give us a list of where you are on the old social media. First and foremost, Instagram. Sheepy Race, it's S-H-E-E-P-E-Y, Race, R-A-C-E. And the same name, you search it on YouTube for our YouTube channel. Uh, we tried to upload once a week on YouTube, and we're fairly active on Instagram with daily posts, story posts of what we got going on in the shop. Those are the two major things. Or you can go to our website if you want to reach us and ask us a question. Just go to our website. There's all the email addresses to reach us, and we try to reply within 24 hours. Awesome. Oh, We'll put uh, links to all of those in our show notes to make it super easy for our listeners to find you. But thanks again for your time today, Alex. Really interesting to hear the development of Sheepy Race and everything you're into. Uh, I've certainly been watching you for a while and uh, you know, all the best for your future. Really enjoying seeing what you're doing and congratulations on all of your success. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.